Hello friends, how's it going? My name's Matt Barr and you're listening to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. The show where I try and cover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Big thanks for listening to this episode, hope you enjoy it. Rare treat, this one. Firstly, because I recorded it in person, blimey. I think this is maybe the fourth episode I've recorded face-to-face since the pandemic began. And it was great to be reminded of what a different experience it is to do these in three dimensions. And then the second reason that it was a rare treat is because my guest Joe Taylor is somebody I've been meaning to speak to for the podcast for a few years now. Gets recommended a lot, as you're going to hear. Why? Thanks to the work that he does and the conversation we ended up having was really brilliant. So Joe runs a charity called The Wave Project, a surf therapy charity, which and I'm just going to read from the website here because there's no point in reinventing the wheel when it comes to these things, uses surfing to help young people improve their emotional and physical well-being. We also run beach school projects to help children feel more engaged in education. Now, the Wave Project currently runs their surf therapy programs in 32 locations across the UK. And obviously is a bit of a partner you know, there's a lot of these, as we discussed, me and Joe, around the world these days. Uh, Ways for Change springs to mind. Um, yeah, there's quite a few of these organisations. And in the Wave Project's case, they've helped hundreds of young people. And it's pretty amazing stuff, as I think you're going to agree once you hear our conversation. These days, the notion of water therapy is fairly well known. As the sheer number of Instagram accounts and Guardian articles extolling the virtues of cold water swimming demonstrates but back in 2010 2011 when joe set up the wave project it was rather less well known and this is what i was interested in chatting to joe about really as well as understanding much about the practicalities of how harnessing the water in the way the wave project does really can change lives for the better so where did the idea come from how has his personal relationship with the sea informed the whole thing how has it evolved over time That's his relationship with the sea, I should say. It's an intriguing starting point for a nourishing, thought-provoking conversation, which I think you'll agree, once you hear it, is exactly what went down. Big thanks to my friends at Watergate Bay for letting me use their space to record this episode. Great to be back there. A little welcome sign that normality is returning. And thanks to Joe and Rachel at The Wave Project for the help in making this happen. I'll be back at the end for what I think is going to be a bit of a bumper housekeeping corner this week. Um, But in the meantime, here's me and Joe Taylor discussing all things Wave Project. Enjoy. I think we're good. I think we're going. Do you think you'll surf this weekend? Probably not because we're going away camping. Um, So my my summer holiday starts at the end of today so um right yeah so uh we're, we're off to wales oh yeah um, where you off to to powys nice um, near, near there um sort of um not far from the edge of Snow- snowden national park yeah yeah so, yeah, yeah beautiful there. there yeah i just had a fun trip to pembrokeshire obviously further southwest but at the end of may which was great actually mm. yeah it's because i always end up coming down to the southwest, you know, quite of ov- it's quite the obvious shower, isn't it? Croyd or down yeah, there, yeah. down Newquay, down there, and um, we were like, right, finally, I'm going to go try somewhere different, and it was great. Yeah, you know, quieter waves were good. Yeah, yeah. 
roads were not as hectic because yeah. yeah. I mean I forget what it's like down here in the summer oh, God, yeah. you know like just driving around last night I was like Jesus yeah. you know it is the rumors are true it is hectic yeah yeah so yeah, well this is this is it with the summer holidays we try and get out of Cornwall and Devon actually it's you know try and find somewhere else to go like because it seems like a lot of people just, just a little bit cl- like more in line mm. actually yeah it, it doesn't matter about the distance so much it's just like cause it's directional oh, yeah. so yeah oh, okay. um it seems like that's becoming more and more of a thing down there like people because i've got quite a few friends that live down there who are doing the same thing like some are just like right i'm getting out like they're gonna airbnb yeah. the place and they're gonna um just try and you know leave leave the crowds like let leave people to it so is that are you yeah. finding that's becoming more and more common down there for people to do that definitely it's actually interesting because w- w- what we're actually doing is some friends of ours are staying in our house and their airbnb in their house right so um it's like a chain airbnb chain <laughs> well we ju- i mean we're just they, they've just got some like financial difficulties so we're just doing it to help them out and they're give you know they get some some extra money for it and yeah um we're just going on holiday which we'd be doing anyway yeah and they're looking after our cat so um right, you right. Know, it kind of works you know yeah so and um, are, you, are you from down there are you from cornwall not originally no how long no. have you been in Toro? uh well 20 years now so have you seen because i'm i'm, I'm kind of homing on the gentrification thing really just because i've seen it just feels like last couple of years like the conversation around housing and how local people are getting priced out in this part of the world is becoming um, more and more, you know, vociferous. Like people are actually getting more and more pissed off about it. Because, you know, there's, have you seen Bait? Have you seen the film Bait? I haven't yet, no. Yeah, no. but that, that's yeah. obviously what that's yeah. about, that film, isn't it? Like yeah. local communities being marginalized by second yeah. homeowners and stuff yeah. like that. Have you, have you felt that becoming more of an acute issue as somebody who's lived down here for a long time? To be honest, it was a bit of an issue when I moved here, actually. Yeah. Um, I think when I moved to Cornwall, it was in 2000. And it was being talked about then as, you know, but, you know, people were talking about you know house prices going really high and no one could afford anything. And it's just a problem that's continued. It's not really gone away. And um, it feels like COVID's kind of exacerbated it because everyone's dis- everyone who's got a bit of, you know, has got the, the privilege to be able to make the decision is suddenly going like, oh, I might sell up and get more space. And then it's obviously kind of squeezing more and more people out, isn't it? You know, like locally. I think that's, that is true, yeah. Because yeah. no, you mean I grew up in the Northwest and um, I remember even in the 80s, like it, in, in North Wales, it was like a massive thing, you know? Right. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because it just, I guess with the work you do, you probably at the sharper end of noticing, you know, how these societal trends actually affect people day to day on the ground, you know, like like the opportunities that, that get squeezed out for people and and like the the narrowing of options, you know what I mean, that people have in these communities. Are, are you seeing that kind of relationship between, like I say, the top-down issue that we're sort of discussing and then like how it affects people day to day in the work that you do? Uh, in the work I do, not so much because I think the work the Wave Project does is more around children's mental health. So what we encounter is perhaps more the, maybe the consequences of some of those problems, right? So like uh, if parents are stressed yeah, and um, 
that can have a that, that can cause stress and anxiety for the ch- children their children inadvertently mean mean it to but uh so what we encounter are stressed children but we don't necessarily always know why that is yeah um but there's no doubt that they're you know stress generally stress levels are high yeah among children yeah and, um you know surfing and the water is one way that they can relieve some of that stress and that's the whole point of surf therapy and what we do really yeah um but i just on the point about housing i mean i think definitely see that in terms of my my staff my team um you know i think they struggle with housing and housing issues and so you, you know you, if you go out to Newquay today uh what you'll see is lots of businesses saying we need staff you know um uh, vacancies here because no one can get any staff and they can't get any staff because no one can afford to actually uh, live, live here. here yeah work and um, live here. and work in kind of bars and cafes and shops and um so it, you know it is having an effect and um yeah i mean you do you do wonder where it's gonna i mean you know this is not an original observation in the slightest but you you do wonder where it's gonna end don't you because even where i'm staying at morgan porth like which i've not really been to for years to be honest and I'm staying with a friend of mine, and the amount of million-pound houses that are being built down there, like now, you know, like, and you've got all these old properties that have obviously probably been, been like 50, 60 years, and they're looking dilapidated, they're looking run down. There's a lot of that in Cornwall, isn't there? And they're obviously just being demolished, and people with a lot of money are coming in and building, you know, and dropping, like, millions on a holiday home, essentially. You know, ne- next to where I'm staying, my mate was like, oh, that's Jason Statham's house. You know, like whatever, like it's... Yeah. So you do, and, and like you say, like the, the consequence of that is is felt by local businesses, for example. And you just you just do wonder, like for, for a part of the world like Cornwall, with its really well-noted sort of social issues that are like historical and long-standing. Yeah. You do, you do wonder where it's going to end really, don't you? Because it's it's not only is nothing happening, it's going even more in the other direction for people, isn't it? So, um, and becoming more of an acute problem, right? Uh, I, I mean, I, I think it is. Yeah. I think you, I think you're right. Um, yeah. I mean, where, where it ends, I, I yeah, probably I a topic, know. bigger, bigger yeah. topic than this podcast yeah. can, uh, can handle, yeah. I would say. Um, so, you know, you mentioned the work that you do, um, the wave project. So for people that yeah. are listening, and that aren't familiar, like how, what, what's the, what's the one liner? Like, how do you normally describe it? Like the, what the wave project actually does? Well, we're a surf therapy charity. So, um, uh, and I guess surf therapy as a concept is, um, is like, is relatively new still. Um, so when I got involved in it 10, 11 years ago, the, the concept didn't really exist. In fact, actually, I remember, in the early days of the wave project talking to uh, someone i wanted to get some money out of one of our potential funders and they said um they would give us some money but they didn't want it to be called therapy because right. they thought that surfing wasn't this, this wasn't therapy there was no no evidence it was therapy and they didn't want it to be called therapy and i pushed back and said well no it is it is therapy it's it's, it's therapeutic we can see that in the outcomes it's having on people um, but now that conversation probably wouldn't happen 
because I think, in fact, funnily enough, I was only reading yesterday, the, um, the chief medical officer produced a report about uh, healthy coastal communities and some of the health problems you get in coastal communities. Uh, and it referenced surf therapy, I was pleased to see. Right. Um, on page 255, if anyone's yeah, particularly yeah. interested in digging sure. it out. It's in there. Um, it's in there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's interesting that that's almost kind of mainstreamed into that kind of thinking now. Yeah. Um, and it was referenced in the context of it being one of the health benefits of living near the coast. Because actually, like you were just saying, Matt, you know, um, the actually there's a big downside to living in kind of places like Cornwall, Devon and coastal communities. There's, there is more poverty, there's yeah. housing shortages, They less tend to jobs. be the sharp end, don't they, of these social kind of problems that we have as a society at large anyway, don't they, these communities? Yeah. And I think there's a bit of recognition of that yeah. now in the government. But um, so stuff like being able to get in the water and go in the sea are things that do help to compensate a bit in terms of because that's something you can't do as much when you're in the city or in a higher paid, you know, yeah. job in an urban environment. Um, so I guess, I guess it's about choosing what kind of life you want. Yeah. I mean, before we get into the specifics of surf therapy, one thing that just struck me then is, you know, on this idea that the concept generally is becoming more mainstream. I mean, just even on an individual level, there's a, there's a you know, Cold water swimming, I'm just going to use that as the obvious, very, very obvious example. Um, you know, blue mind sort of therapy, like I'm probably not using the term in the correct way, yeah. but you, you know, the Wallace Nichols sort of conversation, yeah. all that stuff like that, that generally is becoming much more a, a conversation, isn't it? You know, the idea that individuals can use water therapy as like a, a means to, to sort of control them, you know, like aid, not control, wrong word, their mental health that's also become particularly in the last five years like become hugely um part of the kind of conversation around mental health hasn't it so is that is that something you've seen in tandem with the work that you do yeah definitely definitely and you know you mentioned wallace nichols he's you know kind of one of the sort of uh if you like the philosophical intellectual kind of powerhouses in the debate you know around he's done a lot of the research around the benefits of water on mental health and on the mind um and the and it does kind of get back a little bit to the kind of lifestyle you want to have. And um, I think it's a little bit of a misunderstanding that you can be super stressed and really stressed out with your job and be on the verge of a crisis. And you kind of go and dip in a, a you know, a, a pond, you know, down, down the road and you're going to suddenly feel better. I think, I think it's quite as simple as that, although you, you probably would feel a bit better. But I think it's more about what... For me, it's more about a, a change of mindset that the, the ocean, the water environment gives you, you know, and having that connection back to it and almost overcoming some of the fears that you have of getting into the water and being cold and wet and, um, you know, muddy and, you know, getting covered in wildlife and all, all this sort of stuff. Once you've overcome those 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 fears, you almost feel stronger and more resilient as well as more connected to the world you live in and I think that helps to change the way you live so it's almost like a, a bit of a two-way street in terms of your connection with water and that kind of lifestyle I think that's kind of what the whole blue mind concept is about it's changing how you live your life and how you think about the world you're in that makes sense yeah it does and I was going to ask yeah. the question so is that because yeah like you say 
it's kind of caught before horse you know, if you if you talk about like just the literal effect that the water has on you isn't it you know what you're obviously saying is like it's about a mindful almost decision about how you're going to live isn't it you know and, and where this fits into that so is that the foundational principle if you like that's at the heart of the work that you do like helping this is one of the tools that you can use to help people you know reset themselves in that way if you like yeah i i i guess i guess it is um i mean i think for me see i i kind of stumbled into this whole space very accidentally and knew really nothing about um blue mind about uh, psychology about um even really about surfing um and uh i you know um by a few quirks of fate ended up running a project uh, that was taking children with mental health issues surfing uh, but what stood out for me was the 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 impact was really visible you know almost immediately when they kind of went into the water um, but then when you measured it over a relatively short period of time over a kind of a six-week block of um, surfing lessons these young people were just transformed um, and so you almost didn't really need to know a lot about uh, psychology to see the difference. Yeah. Um, and then over time, the difference was backed up with some of the data that was being gathered around around these changes. Yeah, which presumably was developing in tandem. You know, with the as you grew more experienced and anecdotally could see these changes, then yeah, as we, as we were saying, the, the general debate was also taking on a kind of new tenor, wasn't it? And people were just becoming more aware of it so so those if you like scientific <laughs> clumsily phrased but you know groundings were, were becoming more people were exploring them through different work and could could make those connections a little bit more explicitly well i mean you know certainly with with my experience and wave project we actually very started out from a point of view of wanting to measure the difference because that's when the wave project piloted in 2010 we were beneficiaries of a small NHS grant um, and they were very keen to measure get some data on this project straight away so actually we they, they gave us some time with a psychologist to set some um, some uh, objectives around uh, data gathering and evaluation and monitoring uh, and it was quite a simple evaluation really uh, we measured six things um that the young people um there's six six questions basically that they were asked at the beginning of a course around how they felt about their confidence their relationship to other people um their perception of the future those kind of things uh and their, their answers were given a score right of one to ten it was in that pilot scheme and then we measured, asked the same questions again at the end, also given a score of one to ten, and just looked at, compared the differences. And then we, and there was, you know, big big jumps in these numbers across the whole cohort. Um, but then that was backed up by what the the professionals, the doctors, the psychiatrists who referred them in the first place were saying about them as well, and parents as well. You know, told us that they saw big differences in in behavior in confidence in communication um and you know for such a short intervention this was really surprising you know so and that's what made me realize that actually there was something in this you know right um 
but then the the measurement tools became a bit more sophisticated over time yeah you're right and uh, but actually the data has remained pretty consistent really right from what you observed at the beginning yeah and you said that it sounds like it was quite sort of serendipitous for you then the way that you got into it because your background you worked in politics right like did you, you work for an MP well right? yeah worked in politics maybe sounds a bit more important than what I was actually doing I, right. I, I worked for an MP yeah uh, I, I ran uh, her constituency office in Cornwall and um, uh, part of my job was trying to engage local party activists and volunteers to do things like distribute leaflets and stuff like that Proper so gra- I got gra- grassroots kind of gra- on the ground grassroots stuff yeah. yeah but what was quite interesting what, what I became quite interested in was the idea of engaging volunteers in something you know and so when I lost I lost my job when she in tw- the 2010 election because she lost her seat she was Lib Dem right she was a Lib Dem yeah. that's unlucky that was the, the just if, you, if you're a Lib Dem going to lose your seat 2010 was not the year to do it no that's right yeah 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 absolutely yeah yeah, and, he, and she only lost by, uh, I think it was 44 votes. Jesus, really? So really close, yeah. Right. Um, and that was down here, obviously, you said, right? Yeah. That was down here, yeah. 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 So um, the MP's name was uh, Julia Goldsworthy. She was the MP for Camborne and Red Roof in okay. Cornwall. Um, so she lost her seat, and I, I therefore lost my job and was casting around looking for something to do. And I was quite interested in the idea of engaging volunteers in something because that's one of the things I've been doing the last few years yeah and um, I'd also been on a voluntary basis working on this dis- disability surfing project in Newquay and I kind of thought well could you combine th- these two things could you get volunteers helping like disadvantaged and disabled children go surfing so I um, out of work and casting around looking for a job sure. for something to do to be honest yeah, yeah. give myself the job of quite often how it works <laughs> this stuff though isn't it well yeah. yeah I just thought it'd be kind of an interesting thing to do and managed to wangle some um, some funds out of the NHS and um, and that's what led to this pilot scheme and um, oh I, right I, so that was the NHS connection where they were so sorry to interrupt you but just to understand so so essentially they were like, yeah, we'll give you this money, but we need to measure it. You know, we need to quantify exactly. it. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. They okay. have to justify why they're giving me the money. Yeah. And just on that point before you carry on, like, did, so did you, how did you feel about that? Did you feel it was a provable case? I just didn't know at the time. Right. You were um, like, yeah, I'll just see, you know, we'll just, yeah, get in, we'll just uh, go into this and work it out kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, um, I thought it might work or it might not. Because um, contextually, it, you know, as, we've, as we're kind of saying, it wasn't a thing, was it? You know, no, like if no. you did it now, obviously I'm sure most people listen to this, you know, as we've said, we'll, we'll get the concept to the very least, you know, but back then this was a hard sell really, wasn't it? You know, well it was, and to be completely honest with you, when I originally approached them, actually what I approached them about was more of a disability project, you know, would you fund like some work and it, you know, sort of volunteer disability surfing project. And that what they said was, actually, our focus at the moment is mental health. Could you do something for young people's mental health? And right. I said, okay, uh, I can try. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, but um, disability is still a big part of me and what I wanted to kind of do, and actually remains uh, with the way. Although we're a mental health charity, um, we try to be an inclusive one in terms of disability. So I've work quite hard to make sure that everything we do is 
of you know accessible and available to children with disabilities who incidentally also have uh, poorer mental health on sure. average than uh, children uh, who are able-bodied so um but anyway so yeah i i have to be honest i i didn't intend it initially to be a mental health intervention and um the, the funding was there for that and but when we did the pilot scheme the results on the, the mental health of this cohort of 20 young people was just so clear and you know some of these young people actually had quite severe problems i mean you know they were uh children and young people with um you know it was quite severely self-harming anger management issues there was one lad with schizophrenia um there was a young man with um selective mutism who wasn't uh, didn't speak um so you know they, they, these were young people with you know they from sort of some had mild issues some were quite severe but they all benefited from it and um yeah the, i i i kind of thought and i was i was at the end of the pilot i still no still no one had given me a proper job so i was kind of thinking well um well, why not carry on with this and right. so i formed the um what, what was originally a community interest company as a vehicle to kind of develop it further right and so how did it progress from there to to, to sort of where you are now because obviously it's really established i mean i'd, I'd once you've answered that one, I'd be really interested, like how it works now, like you know, practically. But yeah, what were the stages to go from that initial kind of spark of an idea to to now? Well, initially it went off, got, uh, it, it went quite badly actually, um, because <laughs> right. um, I'd kind of hoped that the we'd pr- produced all these great results, and you know that the NHS would come along and give us, give the project another grant, and um, they didn't basically. Right, uh, they. they um, so I kind of hung around for a couple of months trying, hoping to try and, you know, close that deal with them. And um, But this was a time, you remember, the, this was 2010, so a new government had just come in, new Tory government. And if you remember... Um, Austerity. Uh, yeah, Andrew Lansley came, was appointed health secretary. I don't know if you remember him. I do remember him. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he uh, set about reforming the NHS. Uh, if you, um, I don't want to get too political about it, but in precisely the way they, they promised they wouldn't do uh, in the election ca- Yeah, campaign. he ended up at Transport as well, didn't he? And I think, and, well, I mean, he's just one of those, again, you know, I'm not going to, go down this path too far but yeah he was one of those people that's now notorious for essentially creating more problems than he well i mean they're, they're now trying to undo all his reforms yeah, exactly. aren't they? like he's not he, he's history's not been kind to him basically. no no it hasn't really um it wasn't kind to us either because because of all of that yeah uh i think there was a general nhs style panic about uh funding and they thought well we can't fund stuff like this surfing thing when yeah um you know there's all this reform going on so basically they told us unfortunately we love the project but we're not going to give you any more money right but inadvertently or you know as it happened they'd already kind of given the project the opportunity it needed because the thing is the nhs involvement originally had generated quite a bit of media interest there was a piece on the bbc uh, on the bbc website um there was a couple of articles in, like not necessarily very positive articles, actually, but posit- like in some of the tabloids, like the Daily Mail, uh, generally saying that NHS was wasting money on this yeah, surfing thing. Can, I've kept a copy, you, actually. You, you can imagine. Um, yeah. You can imagine. Um, yeah. But um, but what that meant was there was a bit of interest in it. Yeah. So that that also meant for me, I, I was able to kind of find other people who might might be given, willing to give it a try. 
Uh, and actually, the first major charity, there was a, a small charity that gave us a grant of three grand that, that, and that, that um, kept the project alive for a few months, uh, whilst I tried to kind of reorganize, re-strategize it a bit and come up with a bit of a plan. And then uh, BBC Children in Need um, gave it just to the point where I was starting to give up. And this was the following May. So we piloted in September, October 2010. And then it was May 2011 that we actually got a grant from Children in Need. Right. Ten grand. And I remember, I remember getting the letter through at home. And, uh, you know, um, I'd been at the point of despair with this project, really. In fact, by then, I'd pretty much decided I was going to uh sack it all off and right. become a teacher that was my my, my I've, I've started thinking right in september i'm gonna this surfing thing i'm gonna go off and yeah yeah be a teacher, get a proper job um i mean personally we had our first child in the august so he was sort of six eight months old i'd already taken a job as a ta in a local school to get bring some money in you know uh, so it was actually all quite quite desperate, actually, in the Taylor household at the time. But um, and I pretty much said, you know, no, given up. But then we got this this letter through from Children in Need saying we're giving you a grant, and it just, you know, the word lifeline. <laughs> uh, you can't really describe how I felt at that time. You know, just to, just to be given this opportunity now to give this a try. So it was a year's worth of funding, effectively. Right. Um. And um, you know, and um. And that's what basically just rescued um, the Wave Project and rescued, rescued Surf Therapy right. was that, that grant. And I was able to then pay myself a small amount of money um, to do that work, do the work over the next year, carried on being a TA actually for another two and a half years after that. Right. Um, uh, but interestingly, that work was really valuable in just understanding children and you know, ch- children's issues and... I learned a lot about uh, working with children doing that job as well as doing the Wave Project. And then what really changed the game for us was a lottery grant, which we got in the beginning of 2013, which was a three-year funding pot where I could actually um, get a job, as, as basically employ myself as yep. a, a project coordinator for the Wave Project um, and got a full-time job with the charity and then things grew from there, really. Yeah. Um, and then this like in our 2021 accounts where you know turnover of 1.2 million pounds and um 40 staff and wow 25 projects right and that's all happened because not because of really anything i've done particularly but just because of an explosion of interest in this kind of thing it's like the right idea at the right time isn't it you know as as we're talking about like a great idea doggedly kind of in the, in the beginning you know getting it to a point where it can be a reality but then as you say like the kind of general interests general benefits being appreciated and also other schemes which we'll get to in a bit in tandem kind of springing up all over the place the environment in which this could flourish changed didn't it as as it went on basically i think i think it did and also it was the actual impact it was having on people of course i mean and that's what really drove the interest in it it yeah. was just people saying i did this surfing thing and or, or you know my, my child did it and they're just they're so much better you know yeah. they're, they're more they're happier they're more positive about themselves they don't they're not as upset or distressed as they were could you explain doing it could you explain then how does that work 
Well, that's what I spent the last ten years trying to find out. Do you know? Do you know, know. Do you know what I mean? Though, like, yeah. how, like, because because those are incredible benefits that you're describing, and so it might be a good point to sort of dig into that, really, because I'm I'm sh- like, by the sounds of it, this is something you've given a great deal of thought to. So, what, it, what what's your take now? It is well. I mean, initially, uh, you know, as I said, I, I saw the results happen, and then that was backed by this data that was coming through. And each year, I just that we got the data back. I was, I was thinking. Well, has it just been a fluke? You know, was it just a small data set? Was it, you know, but then each year the data sets increased. You know, it started with 20 young people in the first pilot scheme. Then that was 100 young people in uh, the end of the first full year we delivered. Uh, did a paper on that, which was published in the Mental Health and Social Inclusion Journal, um, showing really clear results. Then at the end of this lottery project in 2015, we did another uh, independently evaluated paper that was peer-reviewed that looked at a sample of 167 young people over different project areas. Again, the results were really clear. So what was going on? And I think, uh, you know, I just became almost obsessed with knowing what that was. Yeah. And essentially, I think uh, the, the evaluation, the data has pointed to three kind of ele- elements, really, three areas that are key to the change um if i explain what those are and then perhaps try and explain how that how they help people so the three elements really are first of all the outdoor environment so and that's i mean that's supported by a lot of emerging uh, evidence and you know uh, from lots of different places defra have done loads of work on this as well as loads of academics worldwide but just being outside, being in the natural environment, being connected with the world around you, you know, um, really, really valuable for your mental health, your emotional resilience, helps to reduce depression. Um, there's been some really quite uh, detailed studies done around things like, you know, cold water swimming and um, postnatal depression, for example. The, uh, there was a really interesting study done a few years ago about that. So there's just tons of evidence about that. So the, the, the outdoor environment, and in particular, the sea and the water. Um, there's something about the uh, the whole otherworldliness of it. You know, d- you know, you, you, the way your whole being and body is in a completely different responds to a different set of physical kind of criteria. You know, you can you can move in a different way in the sea. You can move three dimensionally. You can uh, fly and move around, which you can't do on land. Sounds obvious, but you know, it sounds uh, obvious, and also. It's something we take so completely for granted. But even when you put it in those terms, you know, I was just even thinking then, like, yeah, I mean, that is swimming, something like so simple. But when you put it like that, you know, you even the phrasing it that way gives you an idea of the transformative effect it could have, you know, really, compared to walking around on two legs in your day-to-day kind of urban environment, for example. Absolutely. And, and interestingly, one thing I've noticed is for people, especially children with autism, um, the sea has this incredibly calming effect. And I was actually talking to an autism expert about this quite recently, and he hypothesized that this was to do with the patterns that you get in the sea and the kind of regularity of the waves. And autistic people like to kind of spot patterns in things and follow them. And there's something about the rhythm of it that seems to have uh, a very calming effect. And if it has a calming effect on people with autism, that's just probably a more marked way of describing an effect it has on everyone um so that's i think that's really interesting in fact i'd quite like to do more research on that um in the future 
So the C is one element, one yep. key element. Um, the other, uh, the second is is surfing itself, um, and I think uh, really quite simply, it's just it's just really good fun, you know, and especially for children, which is obviously mainly what we work with. Uh, it, it's a massively undervalued um, quality of therapeutic work is just having fun. I think I think. There's a lot of evidence now and more research around play therapy and adventure therapy and stuff, and that's been emerging the last five or six years particularly. Well, it's been around a lot longer than that, but gathered pace in the last sort of last decade as we've been developing the Wave Project. But it, if you think about therapy, especially for children, your, t- your traditional therapies, you know, psychotherapy, medication, counselling, these are all having, you know, huge value, don't get me wrong, but they're not fun. It's not much fun to sit there with a counsellor talking about your problems. It might be, it might be helpful, it might yeah. be valuable. It might help you rationalise those problems. It's not, it's not three foot offshore, though, is it? But it's not like getting into the, the water and <laughs> catching a wave. Yeah. Um, so uh, j- just the, the fun of surfing. And, but there's more to it than that, though, because it is fun. But unlike the kind of fun of, say, going to the fairground or, um, you know, the fun of you know, having a birthday party or, you know, the fun of getting drunk with your mates. Surfing also really builds resilience. You know, you've got to overcome fears to get in the sea in the first place. You've got to learn about um, uh, managing yourself, for, you know, and d- developing the self-control it takes to get knocked off your surfboards, pick yourself up, get back on, paddle back out and have another go. These are the kind of skills a lot of the kids that we work with at the Wave Project just did, didn't have when yeah. they started the project. Their resilience levels are very low. They give up very easily. They panic. They, they don't want to put themselves through something that might be um, that, that, that they might fail at. Yeah, which presumably in many cases has very sound rationale behind it let's say well of course it does yeah. i mean i think if you've uh, had traumatic experiences yeah uh that's the, the, those those instincts are there to protect you yeah um but the beauty of surfing is that it, it kind of teaches you these sort of resilience tools without you even realizing you, that, 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 that you're doing it because you just there's a the children want to have another go yeah it's not no one's, no one's telling them to they want to because they want to catch that wave. They want to get out there. They want to have a go and they want to do it. Um, so that combination of fun and resilience together is a really beautiful uh, combination to help improve those important building blocks of good, good emotional well-being and mental health. But I think the third element that we identified, which in a way ties together the other two, is creating a culture of support around the young people themselves. I keep saying young people because that's who we work with, but actually there's a lot of evidence this works with any people. But um, so I keep talking about young people because that's, that's what we, we work yeah, with. Yeah, sure. But, um, but these are kind of you know, universal principles that you the, talk They're about. universal principles of why surf therapy works really yeah. well. And I think um, creating that culture of support. So first of all, you, you need to have a community there. It, it doesn't work as well if it's just a one-to-one session so having a bit of a group and the group supporting each other uh is really crucial so that kind of sense of community and sense of kind of uh, of, of support of supportiveness um 
and uh, the way we structure things with the wave project is each young person gets a, their own mentor their own surf mentor so that's an individual who's only there to support you uh, as, as a as a as a, a student on the course and they don't have a board um, they stand there in the water or they swim out or they, they they just stay next to the young person and are there with them with whether, whatever that young person needs to do it might be helping them get on their board it might be steadying them on the board it might be pulling the board into the waves or it might be just encouraging them to get back on again um, so you've got their mentor but then there's the wider group of mentors as well so and sometimes the wider group of mentors might all club together to support one one person if needed uh, or they might work more individually and that that can be quite quite flow quite naturally really on the sessions um, it's interesting that the whole reason that uh, getting back to why i wanted to start the project was more around disability and getting volunteers involved and the reason for the volunteers was to was the physical support element of surfing that i kind of thought would be needed yeah but actually it's just as important in, uh, for the emotional and mental uh, support you know the, the psychological support um just simply being there knowing someone else is there to help you is a very important safety net when you're doing something that's quite risky yeah um and that that person is focused on you um and no, no one else in the group is also important and it makes you feel safe so so what, what the young people on our courses get is a combination of uh, a sense of safe, a, a safe space, a safe community, a feeling that they can't fail, um, a sense of fun and excitement, a feeling of reward if they do catch some waves or do something, go a bit further than they thought they couldn't do. They're building their resilience and they're getting all of the benefits of doing this outside in the sea, in the outdoor environment. So actually when you look at it that way, it's not surprising that they're getting quite a big emotional boost, you know, a big emotional hit. Uh, what's perhaps more surprising is just how long that lasts actually after the course finishes and how this is then carried forward into their own ability to almost rationalize their own problems and see their life in a different way. But like we were talking about earlier with Wallace Nichols and Blue Mind, you know, um, the whole idea that you, you change your mindset, you change how you see yourself. And this really came across strongly from our evaluation. These young people were coming into our project, seeing themselves in a very negative way. You know, either uh, I'm a bad person, no one likes me, right? Um, or, or just I, I'm just a child in need. I, I need. I'm someone who needs help. And they were coming out saying, you know, I, I'm a surfer. You know, I, I feel like I can, uh, you know, do things I didn't know I could do. Um, and uh, you know even just saying that you know it, it makes me feel quite emotional because yeah. I, I just um, you know I, it's so powerful and uh, you know it was that that you know has driven the growth of, of what we've done so when you, I think you said did you say 40 projects that you've got now 40 staff and and, um, and, and, and a number yeah. and a number of projects is so yeah how does it work practically so um are you going to different locations do people apply like what's the kind of process to sort of reach these young people so the, the project locations have kind of developed over time in places where uh either there's the surf um there's a sort of a bit of a surf network 
um, or someone has said they want to develop a project there and we've supported them to do that and um, so um, we have projects in all four UK countries um, and uh, each project has um, usually a full-time member of staff a project coordinator um, and, excuse me, and some of the projects have um, like an assist, a project assistant as well now uh, to support the coordinator and then those staff uh, support um, and help train and develop a team of volunteer surf mentors in the area um, and there's anything between sort of 60 and 100 of them per project so um, you know we've got over 3,000 volunteer surf mentors um, who in interface with the charity in different levels some are right. massively committed and come all the time some yeah. kind of come occasionally um, but that, you know it's uh, you know great team of people and yep. they're all there to help young people um, you know access surf therapy yeah so if if someone's listening to this and they're thinking you know that they know a young person that could benefit from this how how would that work how could people sort of find a local project that they could participate in well with the wave project we uh, only accept uh, referrals from um professional organizations right. so uh, they would have to be referred through um you know a school or um uh, social services or you know account council services local authority services or their gp um so, um, so it's prescribed essentially yeah yeah well, well it, it's it's prescribed uh, it's now called social prescri prescription right used to be called community referral it's basically the same thing it's, sure uh you know a, a bunch of professionals identifying a child in need and saying this might work for you is a big part of your job then having to educate that cohort to see it as a viable option because if you're relying on gps for example to make the connection presumably you know we've been talking about this educational aspect to it generally like how you know you you've done all this work to kind of lay the foundations for this to become a legitimate approach so is that a big part of your job to kind of like educate that part of the medical establishment if you like of the benefits as well or is or is that wider conversation doing that work as well well, I think not so much anymore, uh, but that was a, the case a few years ago. Yeah, there was um, people needed to be persuaded that this was a legitimate thing to refer children to. I mean, um, but again, you see the NHS support right at the very beginning really helped yeah. to kind of legitimise the work. And I think that that just got us off to a, a great start in that respect. And, you know, the fact that, you know, psychiatrists and, you know, clinicians were referring children to it from the point of the pilot scheme and they could read our evaluation reports really helped with that conversation but you're right though that there was uh, it took took some persuading in some cases to convince people this was a good idea yeah uh, but actually i don't think that's really the problem now if anything it's the opposite problem of having almost uh, trying to cope with the amount of referrals we do get and really right have enough projects delivered to the right level of quality because remember, each child who's referred needs a mentor to support them for that whole six-week period. Yeah. Um, and then they can also join our surf club, which is a kind of a follow-on project after that. So there's a lot of huge amount of resource has to go into each child. Yeah. Um, but now we're, we're working with around 12 to 1,300 children a year. 
um, all of whom need their men- their own mentor for that time. So yeah, it's um, it's almost and trying to kind of get that that balance right of of um, being able to reach as many ch- children as would benefit from the the, the project. Yeah, with um, coping with the amount of referrals coming in sure is, is one of the challenges at this stage yeah. yeah 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 and obviously you've got like ambassadors as well haven't you you've got like a really yeah now like a great network of people that are obviously got a certain profile like we talked about sophie everard and yeah. victoria pendleton right is your yeah patron yeah. she's our right? patron yeah. yeah so victoria's um yeah. you know it's great because she's experienced depression herself she talks really openly about it um and being such a successful uh, Olympian and you know pinnacle of you know human achievement type stuff you know uh, to 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 all, to then admit as Simone Diles did recently well, in the, the Olympics say, it's so uh, topical right now isn't it yeah. you know with Naomi Osaka and yeah and yeah. Um, Simone Biles like and God you must look at that and think we've got a lot of work to do you know especially the reaction to like Simone because because Victoria got criticised didn't she you know she was quite a pioneer I think of I mean, I, you know, I'm, I can't claim to be an expert on this, but just from the outside, like of somebody who was willing in that position that had been that successful. Yeah, she she absolutely was. To actually the, say like, this does have an impact, Yeah, you know, like which doesn't get spoken about. And now we've probably got the most high profile example of that ever, haven't we, with Simone Biles? It's, it's funny with the Simone Biles situation because I, I, I was watching that thinking, would that have happened had, you know, Victoria Pendleton not been speaking, you know, five six seven years ago about uh, her own mental health challenges i mean maybe it would have i don't i'm not not disparaging what simone biles's courage in speaking out at all but you know there's no doubt that the conversation has changed and when you when you're known to be you know a super success at the olympics right and you've got to have that you know mental that complete mental resilience to be able to, you know, to, to go and say, actually, you know what, I, I, I crashed, you know, I, I, I couldn't cope. I, I, I was really struggling. It takes an immense amount of courage. And oh, it's it, like hard to fathom, really, yeah. on that stage as well. Because in some ways, it undermines everything you were. In a, in a, well, it doesn't, but it does. Well, it, it undermines the perception that the perception. people have of you. Yeah. And that's, that's what's really fascinating and kind of horrifying about the conversation right now, I think, because... Because people aren't thinking of Naomi Osaka, for example, or Simone Biles as people. They're thinking of them as like almost like ciphers for athletic achievement. And once they don't fulfill that role that, that, that they've, yeah, obviously worked for and put themselves in that position, that's clear. But until they, but the moment they in any way try and step out of that role and reassert their individuality as a person people do not like that at all and and it's 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 quite horrifying really because well, 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 not, not only don't they like it i think actually that the, the athlete also loses funding yeah that, because you know um the people funding them start thinking oh, are they are they going to be good enough are they going to get medals so should we start thinking about the next so actually uh you know the, the whole way you know the olympics and elite sport works is probably needs a little bit of you know i i think the way athletes are treated once they're no longer 
at the absolute top of their game. Yeah, you know, see you later. See, see you later. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the applause dies away and, uh, you know... Um, well, it, it's so funny, isn't it? I know we're kind of dwelling on this, but it's fascinating because obviously it's the topic of mental health. Mm. But, you know, in that context, the topic of mental health has just such a long way to go because, as you say, like in elite sport, the, the things that in mainstream discourse about man up, you know, you know, you know mm. what I mean? Like all those things now that are like really cringeworthy that, you, you know, you just couldn't really get away with saying it around a mainstream conversation about mental health. But those things are wrapped up in what it means to be an elite athlete, ultimately. You know, this exactly. mental fortitude that you need to yeah. display. So you're not even allowed really to, 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 to say it because it's almost like a betrayal of your position as an elite athlete. So suddenly in that context, the mental health conversation is like 30 years ago, isn't it? You know, we're back in the... 80s and the 70s like it's but you see there's another way to look at it though and I, I only realized this really by you know having the privilege of being able to spend some time with um victoria pendleton but um i mean she's the only you know top level olympian i've ever really spent any kind of any time with but you know she is so focused you know in absolutely everything she does even i mean even when she presented some, uh, we do an annual awards night for the WAVE project, sort of celebrating all the kids that have done really great things. And Victoria's um, gone to that a, a couple of times and, you know, given out awards and stuff. And even just doing something like that, she's kind of yeah. wants face. to do it well. <laughs> yeah, you know, and so I kind of, the way I sort of see it is, if you've got people like that who are that focused, when they've decided that they're ready to actually talk about mental health in a kind of a, a different way they'll do it in a focused way yeah it's calculated so, yeah so actually Simone Biles I think she knew what she was doing yeah, exactly. she, she's yeah. not she's you know she's a, a very capable intelligent woman and so she knew the impact she was going to have so I kind of think far from being you know and this was the point she was making herself you know it's not it's not a weak thing yeah of course yeah. I think she was actually speaking out on behalf of every athlete because she knows what what they're going through and in a way is, that you and I probably don't. Which you know. is why it's so firstly brave. I mean, if you look at Naomi Osaka as well, like mm. to sort of pull out of the two biggest tournaments in the world and, mm. and, and just sort of saying this is that reason. Yeah. I mean, it, it is bravery, like for sure. And which is why all these kind of pundits or whatever kind of going, oh, they're weak, you know, you know, whatever. It's just, it's just miss. It's for me, it's missing the point of the actual conversation. It's not even the conversation that's taking place really. No. Know? No, yeah interesting yeah. interesting yeah so just just on bringing it back to what we we're talking about mm, yeah, yeah so <laughs> um yeah i mean those people like victoria and sophie mm. are, are brilliant advocates for, for what you do and, I, and and now that we're talking i yeah i understand why they're so important i think because because essentially you you need awareness don't you about the specifics of what you're doing i know that sounds like a very obvious thing every organization needs awareness but what you're doing is so nuanced and so particular that the more even conversations like this the more that people can understand it and and kind of think about how they can contribute and help what mm. you're doing it's kind of critical isn't it really yeah um but i think you know yeah the awareness is definitely growing worldwide i mean if you look at the the, the, the explosion really there's no other real word for it of, of surf therapy programs of different types that have just started in the last sort of five or six years um so here in the uk i mean i can think of probably 10 or 15 different surf therapy or you know 
projects and programs that have uh, that have emerged in the last couple of years, working from everything from you know children with autism to uh, working you know surf therapy for the police and um, uh, emergency blue light services to um, the people recovering from cancer. Um, and then uh, worldwide, you know, you've got surf therapy being used to support veterans with PTSD, stroke victims. There's a project in the Netherlands that's doing that. As um, mental health is obviously a really big one. Um, uh, d- d- people with disabilities, d- d- um, people with autism. Um, uh, you know, projects in Africa looking at kind of community um, cohesion and community development using surfing. Um, it's been it's been an incredible thing to see happen. You know that there's something about that connection with the water and each other um, that seems to just create all of these wonderful uh, personal and social and health benefits. Um, so I'm really hoping that you know that becomes more well understood, both by the people doing it, like me, and also the, you know the wider public, and um, so they can. Uh, you know access um access it for themselves you know you mentioned wild swimming um matt you know cold water swimming that's become so popular because it's something people can just do themselves they don't need to be referred into a program um you know which is which is brilliant i think you know there's some great sort of wild swimming societies and organizations out there that support people um you know that uh you know take some of the principles that we've learned you know like um, cultural and community support and combining that with something like swimming and it's great to see um, you know and um, you know I, I hope there's um, more, more of it <laughs> well there's also skate stand isn't there you know which is using skateboarding as a, a similar social vehicle there's snow camp which I'm sure you're familiar with um, there's the chill foundation in the states which is a Burton snowboards initiative which is also using snowboarding as a vehicle to affect social change mm. like generally there seems to be something about this principle you know of of you know you obviously explained it really eloquently in in relation to water and surfing but yeah there's obviously something going on here that these activities generally do have this benefit really right yeah i mean i think very broadly speaking and i mean this isn't really my area of expertise but the kind of principles of um a safe space so somewhere where the participant what i mean by that is when people go to that space they don't it's not that they necessarily feel physically sp- safe but they feel emotionally safe the people aren't going to bully them there or attack them or criticize them um i think that's one important part of it i think having fun and doing something that's that, that's that challenges you a little bit and is fun and you know a culture just an overall culture and vibe that is supportive that that kind of links to the safe space thing a bit really um i mean my view is the the water is you know adds an extra dimension to it but i think that doesn't mean that those other things like skateboarding and snowboarding um don't also have really great benefits too yeah i think the important thing is the, the the safe space and the culture of support as opposed to it being a competitive environment, yeah. you know, not you know, you're better than you're better than me, and I'm better than him. That's the wrong environment if you want emotional development. Yeah, I think that you know, I mean, look, 
I, I love football, for example. My kid, my boys play football. I coach football and it's, it's competitive. Yeah. You want to beat the other team you're playing. Uh, but you don't do that to improve your emotional health. You no. do that because it's, it's traditional sport. It's fun. It's competitive. And that's also good for you. But that's not uh, going to necessarily improve your emotional health. Yeah, as I far mean, as we understand it. traditional sports have obviously always been a vehicle for social mobility, haven't they? Let's put it that way. You know, like, and that's, that's something that's just very well founded, very well. Absolutely. I see the point you're making. Yeah. I see the distinction. Like, and I completely, the reason I'm kind of thinking about this and sort of forming my thoughts while I'm speaking is because I recognize what you're saying. You know, like I, I grew up playing football, you know, like, but it wasn't really an environment for me. Like I love playing football, like, and, and I still play football. And, but as a kid, it wasn't right for me. You know, I reached a point with it where the, the the kind of social demands that it places on you, as you say, just weren't for me. You know, like it, it, it didn't benefit me. Like, and whereas like when I got into skateboarding and then later the things that I'm into now, yeah, obviously you're getting a different, it's a different vehicle for the, for the, to try and reach the same goal, isn't it essentially? You know, I think so, so, yeah. So I recognize the, the distinction that you make in there for sure. I think with a lot of traditional competitive sports, there's a feeling that you've got to be kind of able to, to hack it. And goes back know, to what we were just saying, uh, like uh, this, this perception yeah. of what it means to be mentally tough in this environment. You've got to be it? mentally tough. And actually, I think there's not very much space for anyone to be able to say in those kind of environments, look, do you know what? I'm not really feeling up to it today. Or yeah. I'm actually, do you know what? I'm, I'm struggling a bit today. Because in a, t- a traditional football team, that wouldn't go down very well. That would not so go what do you down mean? Well. You know, you're yeah. not up to it today. We've got a game. You've got to get out there. Yeah. Um, oh, right, he's not up to it. He's not up to it. Yeah. We're not picking him again. Yeah. It's that kind of environment. And I think, but I'm, I mean, I'm a huge fan of sport, obviously. And uh, and I think sport brings all sorts of benefits. You're right about social mobility. It absolutely does bring that. I think it's also really good for you in other ways. It's yeah. good for your fitness. And I think it's it's also good to have something positive to do. I know my own son, you know, wouldn't be the kid he is now if it wasn't for football. It's been his whole life, you know. He has, he's a lot more into that than he is into surfing. Um despite my best efforts but um, <laughs> uh but you know th- there we go he 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 loves it and um you know so i don't think it's necessarily the right to say there's only you know only one way of doing things but i do think that for people who um, and i'm i put myself in this category as well you know d- don't always feel like you're you're quite tough enough quite ready enough to uh, be always on in terms of competitive sport and I think that's frankly, that's, let's face it, that's most of us at some point. Yeah. Um, it's good to have other options which are supportive and where you're not going to be judged. Yeah. And I think the, you know, so I think there's two things that could we could probably do better. Really, one is in mainstream sports, just be a little bit more open to the idea that sometimes people might not be quite ready, and that's okay. So I think that you know the interventions from you know uh, people like um, Simone Biles are, are really important in that respect. Yeah, it's um, so funny thinking about this now because it's really it's really got me thinking because I think I bring those I still bring that to what I do now like that you know like if I play football or I surf like I can it can go either way for me like if I if I get a, a it's common as you know really common this I think for a lot of people but if I play football and I have a good touch, let's just say, then I'll have a good game. 
his confidence is like high and but if I don't then I'll really get in my own head and and like kind of won't perform to the ability and it's the same if I surf if I go for a surf crowd lineup get the first wave I'm gonna have a good surf don't get that wave suddenly I'm judging myself I'm like yeah. in my own head and, and now that we're talking about it in these terms I'm actually thinking that is coming from experiences in this environment that we're talking about because I didn't play football for a long time after I was a kid it, I, I stopped play, I played you know I grew up playing football like all day every day from when I was like four to when I was like 14 15 and then I just stopped playing really because I just couldn't hack it didn't have the right me- whatever mm. you know yeah and then it was, it was only when I was like 30 that I started playing again and obviously all that stuff had kind of gone you know and I just enjoyed it for the sake of it like yeah. hanging out with mates like blah 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 but I noticed that when I did have a competitive game and even now that is still a real thing and it's yeah. just interesting isn't it because it's got to come from there hasn't it it's got to come from this thing that we're talking about like this this perception of what mental health you know the right mentality means in that context really and i still think when i think about it it actually does impair my enjoyment sometimes of the things that so so i guess it's a very long-winded way of saying that i think if there's a way of giving people kids young people the option to enjoy these things without this additional mental pressure that just very obviously has to be a good thing doesn't it really i think so i think i think there's something about humor as well you know like one of the questions we actually ask now in our evaluation for our young people the wave project is um so that uh, so they rate this on a five point scale but the question is um uh i i can laugh when things go wrong okay so and the the options are like never um, not much some of the time all the time quite yeah. often all yeah, the time yeah. um, and if you answer never if you can never laugh when things go wrong that generally shows quite low levels of resilience because you can never sort of you're always you are always under that pressure you're always feeling like you've got to always be perfect if you ask Simone Biles I can laugh when things go wrong what would you say um um pop i mean i don't know um yeah no, say I, all the time yeah yeah <laughs> for yeah. all we know but i mean do you know what i mean I, and the trouble is the more pressure you're under this is this is the conundrum about yeah uh about success actually it's like the paradox of it isn't it it is because yeah. the more success you have the less you can answer i always laugh when things go wrong if yeah, you if you can always laugh at yourself you might not ever achieve anything but you'll probably be a lot happier yeah and, you know, so the example you gave with football where, you know, when you're 15 at that age where and I kind of stopped playing football about the same age, well, I didn't stop completely, but played a lot less at that age. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, because you are starting to kind of see yourself more as an adult, you're taking yourself a bit more seriously and it's harder to kind of, uh, you know, reconcile having a bad game or, or getting it wrong. And, you know, you you put yourself under that pressure and your teammates add to that by telling you you got it wrong or you missed that penalty or you you should have done this and you didn't. Um, so, yeah, I think a recognition of that is actually quite important. Yeah. Um, well, it know. comes down to that word mentality again, doesn't it? They always mm. say, like, you know, just because we're obviously both know a bit about football, but, you know, it's, that, it's the goal scorer who keeps, doesn't let the miss get in his head. Yeah. keeps going you know like it's it that that's the desired mentality isn't it you know and in in that in that context and i think it's a skill you can learn though because i think in my case i recognized that quite early that i had this 
that would crumble under pressure essentially let's call it what it is really and again even that phrasing is making me cringe now because I'm sort of talking about it like that but you know what I mean and I did sort of recognize that and I do think you can and if this is the work you're doing so I'm sure you're going to say yes you can teach yourself to get better at that but that's certainly what I realized that you know you could it was important to recognize that and and to try and almost train yourself in a way to like be more resilient laugh you know in the example yeah. you use you know exactly or, or perhaps uh, not so much um get better at it but kind of just be more accepting of yeah. yourself when clunky, it happens clunky phrasing again there's a lot of things i've said in this conversation actually, well no no i'm not sorry i'm not no, no, i'm not i'm self-criticizing you know myself just because there's a few things i've said where i've been like it's probably not that appropriate actually but like you know i mean i played football this week and you know um took a shot and whacked the ball you know over the top of the top of the fencing in this kind of yeah um, lean back yeah yeah exactly yeah (laughs) and it went over the fence and actually went over the hill beyond the fence as well it was such a terrible um do you remember Bobby Zamora who played for West Ham? Yeah, when the ball hits, like when that, the ball hits your head yeah, and you yeah, sat yeah. in Rose Ed. <laughs> That's exactly what, what it was like. But do you know what? I did. I, I was, no, no one cared. Because we're well, a bunch of middle-aged guys kind of just it, kicking the ball. And that's where and the humour thing comes who, who in as, as well, isn't it? Yeah. Like, because that, that's one of the things now I really love about playing football because no, one, it's just funny now, isn't it? Yeah. You know, especially when you're our age, it's just like... And, and when you surf with your mates and, you know, it's just... It's when you have this perception of societal pressure, though, in my case, you know, like of, of like a that it becomes a thing, you know, whether it's like a competitive environment, whether it's like a crowded lineup, you know, and they are metaphors yeah. in that way, aren't they, for 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 human interaction generally, you know? Yeah, I mean, I I always find it terrifying, kind of going for kind of team surfs with like other people in the wave project because I'm a pretty poor surfer, really. The wave Bristol. I mean, that is almost, I love the way, yeah. but that is almost like a Petri dish for like <laughs> magnifying your paranoia as a Oh, surfer. tell me about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember we, um, I met like my regional management team there a couple of months ago and we were all going to meet up and go for a surf and I was late. So by the time I got there, they'd already been, been in and, and had a surf. So by the time it came to my, my turn, they were just stood there watching me from the <laughs> from the side, it's not good. and I was like, uh, "And they're all better surfers than me anyway." And I'm like, "Oh God, you know." So, uh, but no one cares. But, yeah, but I'm just like, "Oh, so what?" You know, yeah. I mean, like you know, it's um, so funny. It's so funny. Why, why, why put pressure on yourself? And actually, but I, I was still there thinking, oh "God, I hope I don't just can make a complete balls of this wave because otherwise, you know." And uh, you know, but what does it matter? It if doesn't I did, matter. You know, again. It's all in your head, isn't it? It's yeah. so funny. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, the, the other question I wanted to ask you just while we're just to bring it back slightly mm. on, on track, although I do always love those little uh, di- digressions. Has it changed your relationship to, to water, if you like? And also, because if you don't mind me making an observation, like, mm. you know, we've only just met. It, it feels like emotionally it must be quite challenging at times, like to, to do what you do. Like and I'm, I hope that's not a presumptuous thing to say, but I just no, think yeah. I just think necessarily um, the work that you're doing, the the impact that you're seeing, must take some um, processing at points, you know. So so has it has it changed your like the way that you cope with these situations and is, and, and also like the way that you almost use the therapy that you kind of uh, expound in, if you like. Uh. 
That's quite a big question. Um, but uh, yes, it has definitely. I mean, I, how much of that is the water and my connection with the water and how much of it is just kind of maturing and, you know, getting more more life experience? How much of it is just learning from the people I work with as well? And um, I don't know. But definitely, yes, I think um, I feel... How do I feel about things now? I, I, I mean, I, I, I still worry about stuff all the time, you know, and about the about the Wave project and want it to do well. And I worry about my team and want them to do well. And that's always quite quite a big chunk of my my worry time. Um, but I think I'm probably a bit calmer now than I was when I started. To charity 11 years ago i think at that time i was in quite a quite an anxious frame of mind actually i mean i think you know like i think i said to you earlier you know the whole um thing of losing my job and we had a baby this, i was trying to get this project going i could see some benefits in it I wasn't quite sure what to do in my life you know i think that's a really tough time for people and i think everyone goes through it in some way and at some point where you're doubting yourself, you're doubting, you think you've made a mess of your life, you think you kind of haven't really got anywhere. I remember feeling really emotional actually when my son was born and had to go off to the registry office to um, register as uh, his pet, as his father. And they ask you your occupation. I was unemployed at the time. And I thought, what do I put? You know, because like, I'm unemployed. I don't want it to be on his kind of birth record that his dad's unemployed, you know. So I, I said I was a health worker. <laughs> um, and um, I remember, I vividly remember how I felt at that moment. You know, it was, it was a very low, low feeling of, of failure and just kind of just, uh, you know, like my life was going nowhere and all the things I tried to do had, hadn't succeeded. Um, and I guess now I don't feel like that. But, um, you know, you always feel about like, well, what, what's the next thing? to do what what you know you don't want to be kind of just coasting along you've got to try and kind of think about how you can apply yourself to the next challenge so i guess i kind of that's how i i think i don't that's answer your question really i feel like i've rambled a bit there but, no not at all i mean um, it's like you say it's a, it's a tricky one i think i think in terms of the i mean you're asking about the emotional connection i mean for me um Ever since I lost my job, everything I've done has been about an emotional connection, really. I mean, the whole reason I set the charity up was because I felt an emotional connection to these kids that had done the, the Wave Project and had, um, you know, benefited from it and, um, you know, seen the change that in them and, you know, uh, what it meant to them and, you know, wanting to help them and wanting to kind of do more of it and that was my reason for doing it that was the only reason for doing it i didn't i didn't see there was any money in it or any kind of career in it because there wasn't a career there wasn't any money so yeah, yeah like it was 20, just 2010 yeah i'm going to start a surf therapy char charity that is definitely not a route to when it, when it doesn't really exist and no, no, <laughs> most people think it's yeah. a really bad idea yeah yeah um and there's no real evidence base for it and so on yes i mean it all seemed a bit nuts at the time but um but um, and I remember kind of, you know, there's been a couple of times when I've sort of just gone a little bit nuts, really, especially in the early days of, you know, when there was under a lot of pressure to try and 
you know, there's nothing more real than trying to have to put food on the table for your family, right? You know, that's the thing that, you know, people talk about pressure. I mean, I'm under pressure now. I run, you know, reasonably uh, sort of a medium-sized, small to medium-sized charity. But it's nothing like the pressure of, you know, when you've got no money and, yeah. you know, you, you've got um, small kids. You've, you've got small kids. Yeah. So I've always tried to remember that, you know, that the, uh, that's real pressure. And, you know, so pressure the executives. I'm not an executive, but, you know, you know the, the kind of pressure that people talk about, I think that's that's only partial uh, yeah. pressure. Yeah, yeah. But I remember this one time when I was really just felt completely defeated by it. And I went, um, I don't know whether to share this with you or not, really, because it might make it sound like I'm a completely completely nuts which i suppose i was at the time but I, I went for a run right and it was i remember it was november and it was dark and we've just lost this nhs funding and i was still out of work and i was thinking you know what do i do i just don't know what to do with myself and you know the um kid was you know awake and everything so i, I just went for a run i just kind of forest gump style just carried on running and it started raining and i was just running and running and running and um I remember like my t-shirt got completely soaked, so I just took it off. And next thing I knew, I found myself this complete madman, you know, sort of <laughs> running through the streets of Truro, you know, where I lived just uh, in th this rainstorm in November in the complete dark, you know. Um, but do you know what? I actually felt better. Yeah. And like, I just, I got back from my run and actually thought, uh, I, I just feel a little bit better now and I feel like more able to, <laughs> to do something. So I don't know where that kind of run sa saved me, but like, um, you know, you do, I think you do get these moments where you just feel completely desperate. You don't know which way to turn, you know, you don't know what to do. And I, I mean, I've definitely been there and, you know, it's, it's tough. And, uh, but I think it also, when you've hit that kind of point, you kind of also know, uh, when you are worrying about a problem that, you know, actually you're some way off that point. So, the problems you have now might be severe, serious problems, but you're not quite, quite at that point. So that's a good thing, you know, and that can reassure you, you know. Yeah. So those low points are quite helpful in just mapping context in your life, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, definitely. I think the ways of orientating yourself, aren't they? Especially when you, if you're lucky enough to get through them and move forward, you know, in a way. Like they're, they're definitely, I can completely empathize with that especially somebody who's also like, you know, run businesses and with all the attendant ups and downs that come mm. with that, you know, that you do have to, you do have to remember that at points, don't you? And I think also just, I think the thing I've learned in the last few years, is especially is, you know, it's really important to be quite humble. I mean, I think, and by that, I mean, just accepting that, I don't mean being humble in terms of being, a, you know, a, a man of the people or, you know, type, a Gandhi type humble. I mean, yeah, no, I understand. what I mean is, you know, accepting that um, things might go wrong again. You know, you might, you might, things that you've built might, might be taken away from you. They might, you might lose them again. You might, that might happen. And, and that's okay. You know, I think um, not to try and live your life based on, always preserving the point you're you're at now or getting better i think that's one of the mistakes we have in in kind of uh, the modern way of living it's just you've always got to improve you've always got to do better than your parents did you've got yeah. to i mean actually why you know um it, it's enough to do something good for a bit and that's something you can take with you and if 
that you, you know you're not doing that forever like victoria pendleton you know um uh you know she's an olympic athlete now she's doing something else is the work she's doing as patron of the wave project less important than winning olympic gold well it's not to me um i mean i don't it probably isn't to her now either because the olympic golds were a different part of her life yeah and i think you've almost got to just be able to do that you've got to be able to let go of things um, and if you can do that that's quite liberating yeah 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 Wow, hour and fifteen. <laughs> that flew by. So we'll we'll wrap it there because um, because yeah. I know you're you're just about to go on holiday, aren't you? So firstly, mm. thank you for taking the time to do in this a couple of hours on, on your way out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so where can people find out more if they're listening to this? Well, I mean, you know, we have a website, uh, waveproject.co.uk. So you know, hit us up there, and there's more information about the charity and what we do and how you can get involved. Um, you can also make a donation if you would like to. That would be very appreciated. Yeah. Um, you know, usual sort of social media type stuff. Um, yeah, just just follow us there. But uh, yeah, come and come and say hello. Yeah, great. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Yeah, that's great. So there you go. That was me and Joe. Hope you enjoyed it. I always really, really love it when a conversation forces me to rethink my own take on things, and that happened in real time. In that case, as you could probably hear, which is really one of the many, many privileges of doing this whole thing. So yeah, what a treat to be able to do that one in person. What a pleasure to be able to spread the word about the Wave Project's important life-changing mission. You can find out more about the charity by heading over to waveproject.co.uk and maybe even donating too. So yeah, I recorded that one on a week-long trip down to Cornwall, which was, yeah, lovely to be honest. Saw some old mates, got a few waves, went to a wedding recorded this episode and I also did a talk which I've been mentioning on Instagram I'm at we look sideways if you're interested and the talk went so well it's something I think I'm going to do more of in the future so basically it came about when Christian at a company called WMFTG Watson Marlowe I believe it's called engineering firm I think asked me to come in and give a presentation about how to make podcasts and the art of interviewing people now I've done a few talks over the years I did one as I think I've mentioned before, in Ireland a few years ago. That was about my kind of life and career um, for a marketing symposium. There you go. Um, And enjoyed that. always get a little bit stressed. You know, it's a bit like doing a best man speech, which I've been lucky enough to do a few times. doesn't matter how much you prepare, it gets a bit stressful. Anyway, in this case, Obviously, you've got to write these things when somebody asks you to do that. And by the time I'd finished it, this one ended up being as much about storytelling, cultivating creativity, silencing imposter syndrome, the importance of omnivorously filling your head with good stuff. A lot of the stuff I talk about on the podcast fairly regularly, um, as well as literally about the act of carrying out an interview. So I prepped it and I did it. And while I was prepping it, I also learned a lot about the reasons why I actually do this, I think I've talked about this a bit recently, been having like a minor existential crisis about the podcast last few weeks. Is it worth continuing with? Am I still enjoying it? Um, And this was really helpful in understanding how all the various creative bits and bobs I've tinkered with over the years have helped make the podcast what it is today and also helped me kind of remember what I get out of this. So yeah, I mean, this was before I even did the talk can't really ask much more from a piece of work than this right so the session that I did was basically in three parts first bit 
I went through a talk outlining the 10 principles of interviewing and storytelling I've learned over the almost three decades I've been doing this singularly weird job and interviewing people. I mean, I must have interviewed, forget the podcast, I don't know, 500 people over the years. So I've I've accrued a little bit of experience and um, that was that was a session that I timed at 45 minutes when I ran through it. When we actually did the the thing, it went for two and a half hours because there was a lot of back and forth Q&As, um, which was cool. And then after that second session, I interviewed my old friend and erstwhile podcast guest, Chris Hines, founder of Surface Against Sewage, very popular previous guest of the show, an all-round legend. Um, I interviewed Chris in front of the guests so they could kind of watch me do it and put those, see how I put those principles into action in real time. And then we did a Q&A after that. And then the final session, which we haven't done yet because we're doing remotely once they've digested all this, is the workshop attendees get to interview me and put what they've learned into action and then get me to critique that so they can learn. So, you know, it worked out really well. I posted about the talk on Instagram and Christian, who initiated the whole thing, left me such a nice comment. I'm going to read it out now. This is such a valuable workshop, writes Christian, not just for those interested in podcasts, but more widely, the importance of storytelling as well as considering how we can communicate in a more engaging and empathetic way. Just brilliant. The workshop completely shifted our understanding of the value of not just podcasts, but storytelling to support cultural development with purpose. I know, right? So like I said, it went well, um, as you can probably tell by that fairly glowing um, testimonial. So I'm now thinking, it's got legs this, something I could do for other people and companies. I guess I just need to work out how to package and market it really because there are a lot of podcast courses out there these days. I've got some friends that run them um, and there are also a lot of slightly hippie-ish, new age business type courses out there I'm sure we've all seen the type of thing I mean I get served them all day long in my Instagram and Facebook ads anyway you know these things are dressed up in quite a fluffy way but they're still basically very cleverly ruthlessly and artfully sold and targeted at people and it probably won't surprise long-term looking sideways listeners to hear that my stance on this is a little bit similar to my stance on paid, poorly read podcast ads. If I'm going to do it, I'd like to do it in a way that probably doesn't require me to have a shower and clean the commercial muck off me, which is a little bit how I feel when I see how, like I say, ruthlessly marketed a lot of those other courses are. Um, So at this point, if you're listening, what you're hearing is me marketing my course. So if you like the sound of it, drop me a line via my DMs on Instagram. They're always open and I do share them on stories, so be warned. Or you can get me via the email on podcast.weallookingsideways.com and we'll work some out. That's what me and Christian did and that worked out fine. You might see a few ads from me at some point, but I will be uh, thinking about that quite carefully before I do. So what else is going on? Well, the Olympics happened, obviously. Um, I watched some of it. I missed loads of it. I cheered on my pals who were doing the commentary and I watched some of the skating, surfing and swimming because I like swimming. Bit of a swim geek. Uh, Now, obviously, this was a big cultural moment for our little sideways world. And as somebody who's been involved in snowboarding for decades and has witnessed these cross-cultural teething pains, let's say, firsthand, I've naturally been a very interested observer as skateboarding and surfing have followed suit 
onto the Olympic stage. I mean, it's a very, very good indication in the Olympics of how the mainstream sees our culture, which is something that we tend to forget when we're happily existing away in our little corner of the world. In the UK in particular, which is what I'm really going to focus on here, this mainstream lens is symbolised by the BBC coverage, which is always really revealing, I think. Now, I'm not talking about Ed Lee, Mark Churchill, Ben Mundy, John Taylor and Tim Warwood, obviously, who did an outstanding job, I thought, one and all, of translating our culture for the mainstream. I'm talking about the way it's handled by, you know, your more regular presenters on the BBC. And I think the thing I found most interesting about that is how that really has not moved on in 20 years. You've still got anchors kookily doing links about the word stoked as if it's the weirdest shit in the world. Um, And, you know, they're always eternally fascinated by the the camaraderie of the skaters and surfers because they actually really like each other and they really want each other to succeed. This is mental. It's the same chat snowboarding has had for years. I mean, I remember in 2002, the outrage we felt when Steve Cram said something like, well, you know, it's not really a proper sport, is it? And when Claire Baldwin was going on about like, you know, everyone wearing baggy trousers and all that shit. I mean, like I say, I just find it quite mad that this is still the mainstream perception of things 20 years later, as represented by this admittedly very small sample size. Because, you know, it's not like, first, it's not like plenty of the other sports that we see in the Olympics aren't really fucking weird. I mean, look at modern pentathlon, for example. Now, I watched an hour-long show about modern pentathlon yesterday on the BBC, and they treated it with absolute veneration as if it was like the most normal thing in the world instead of literally a made-up sport by Baron de Coubertin I believe is how you pronounce it the guy who basically created the model Olympics designed to mimic a soldier being caught behind enemy lines and having to escape which I'm reliably informed is the genesis of that sport you know so that's why it's got fencing shooting swimming horse riding and running I mean my point is you could not get a more fucking contrived thing ever but you know that gets treated as if it's like you know oh yeah pentathlon oh yeah that's totally normal as if you know as if like loads of people are doing it around the UK rather than you know I'm sure you get my point anyway look at gymnastics or ice skating you know fundamentally they're all really weird yet by dint of familiarity and exposure these sports are considered normal and treated as such while skate surf snow are treated very very differently still I mean, just look at the NBC coverage of the Olympics, which had apparently our old friend Graham Bell commentating on it. I mean, Christ almighty, you know, what decision making has gone on there? So that for me, and this is where I get to the point, is why the James Hope Gill storm in a teacup is actually quite important. Um, Much as I feel sorry for James Hope Gill for blundering into this situation that he clearly has, because really... The way that I look at stuff like this is it was basically just a really missed opportunity to address this aforementioned silliness. So in case you missed it, James Hope Gill is the CEO of Skateboard GB and the main man being given loads of credit for the way he's got that organisation to the point where they can actually deliver a bronze medal. Now, I do get that. I've got some experience of working in that strange little world when I was involved with GB Park and Pipe prior to Pyeongchang. I worked with Leslie McKenna who was kind of the, you know, in charge of GB Park and Pipe to deliver that program. And we um, devised a marketing and communication campaign in which really we were trying to address the very thing I'm talking about. And I think we did that quite successfully if you look at some of the coverage that we got. Um, and my point is I got a bit of a bit of an insight into that world. And I think you do, you do need people like Leslie McKenna in Snowboarding's case and Daz in Skateboarding's case, alongside the people like James Hope Gill, 
who can negotiate, in James's case, this weird sport funding world and unlock things for a fledgling, fledgling Olympic activity like skateboarding. And by all accounts on that, he's done a good job as the bronze medal for Sky Brown would testify and which is how he will be judged by UK sport and skateboarding will be as a whole. I mean, I think we can expect to see skateboarding get a load more funding next time thanks to these efforts. So on that score, I do think the criticism... And the very personal criticism was pretty harsh. Um, but my view is that somebody in that position needs to use every opportunity to state the correct case for skateboarding, surfing and snowboarding in the eyes of the mainstream. Because we don't get many opportunities to do that. So when a GMB anchor asks you if you skate in a slightly sneery tone, I don't think it's that appropriate to try and chum up to him by basically saying, well, I'm just like you, I prefer golf too you've got to use the opportunity to set them straight and use that priceless once every four year opportunity to say the right thing. Now, a lot of people defending James have said he was tired. He'd been up all night, etc., etc. But I'm willing to guess the guy probably earns about 150 to 200 grand a year. I would, I personally think getting this stuff right is literally part of the job really. And I'm always amazed when people in that sort of position miss such obvious open goals because if he'd have just gone well you know what there's loads of older generation skateboarders people like Sean Goff who've actually been involved and created the skate culture which has enabled Sky Brown to win a bronze for the last 40 years so although I don't skate myself I think we need to show credit to that culture because it's the same culture that Sky's part of and it's not really something that we should be, be disparaging. I've just said that off the top of my head. You know, if you just said that, like basically what we get is everybody in skating going, okay, this guy's got our back and he gets to address the mainstream bullshit view as personified by Steve Cram, Claire Balding, etc. And then maybe next time they don't ask that question. Maybe next time they get a little bit of a better understanding of skate culture or surf culture or snow culture. So for me, it was a massive open goal missed. And the, the strange thing is it's just so avoidable. You know, how can he not know this stuff? I mean, I chatted to a friend of mine in the industry who said, well, they stretch really thin. You know, they don't have the resources. There's a lot of available experience and knowledge around that you could have used to avoid this stuff. And if the bloke in charge of Skateboard GB doesn't realise he's got the eyes of the skateboard on him, who want to see him do the right thing, it just feels like there's a real missed opportunity and something's gone a bit wrong there. Now, I know there's people probably listening that are personally involved in the whole Skateboard GB, and some of them are friends of mine, who will probably be quite pissed off about me saying this. Um, but I think you've got to call it both ways. I think, I think the criticism, to be honest, I think is quite justified really and I think it is a clangor and I think it is an open goal and I think we should should be allowed to I think you should be allowed to hold two separate thoughts in your head James Hopegill has done a very good job of getting Skateboard GB into that point and he also fucked up in this case um, and the other thing I'm going to say about this is the golf thing which was kind of what really riled everybody I mean you know I'll just say what I just said about modern pentathlon it always really staggers me I mean I'm not sure if you've looked at fucking golf recently but it's an expensive pursuit primarily undertaken by rich white people with its own very weird language social codes and uniforms remind you of anything the very thing that bbc anchors for example always use to laugh at skateboarding surfing and snowboarding i mean like i say it is proper fish in a barrel stuff this if you'd prepared and you want to actually try to change perceptions which like i say i humbly contend should be part of the gig for any ceo of an organization like skateboard gb so I just wanted to say something about that because I do find this stuff interesting 
um, I do think we should address it in our world. Um, and I would personally, as somebody who's got quite a lot of experience in this area, I'd have, I'd have given him, I'd have chatted to him on the phone for half an hour and done it for free. Do you know what I mean? Like I just, at this point, we all just want to get it right. Um, so I'll say again, my DMs are open and that is not me angling for work. That is just me saying, you know, use a bit of the experience that's out there and perhaps in the future, it's not going to happen again. On that slightly opinionated bombshell, I will close things for this week. My thanks for listening um, and for Joe and his friends for making this one happen. And uh, yeah, nice one. See you later.